You're listening to the Writers Forum. I'm your host, Mike Toos, and today I have the privilege of speaking with John Maxwell Hamilton about his new book, Manipulating the Masses, Woodrow Wilson and the Birth of American Propaganda. John is the Hopkins P. Brazil LSU Foundation Professor of Journalism in the Manship School of Mass Communications at LSU, and he's also a global fellow at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Welcome to the show, John. Thank you very much for having me. So in the book, um, you detail what became known as the Committee on Public Information, which was set up by Woodrow Wilson right after Congress authorized entry into World War I in April of 1917. For our listeners, could you give us a brief description of what the Committee on Public Information was and how it came to be? So the Committee on Public Information is our first and really only ministry of propaganda in American history. It was created one week after the United States entered World War I, as in April 1917, and it lasted for the 18 months that the United States was in the war until it ended with the armistice in November of 1918. The CPI was created initially with almost no forethought. It had uh, it came into being with an executive order that was only three sentences long. The idea behind it at the time was that the uh, Wilson administration felt they were going to need someone to censor newspaper uh, stories that might in some way compromise military security. In other words, give the enemy more knowledge of where troops were going to be and things like that. As it turned out, however, the CPI became bigger and bigger until it really used every means of communication, not just the censor, but also to persuade Americans to be supportive of the war. Okay. Well, let me ask you this. We're going to get into some of the details of that, but who was on this committee? Well, the committee is a misnomer uh, and uh, in, in many ways sort of suggests what was ill thought out. The, the head of it was a guy named George Creel, and he was the chairman. That was his title. Really, it should have been director. Uh, and the committee was supposed to be uh, consisting of the Secretary of Navy, the Secretary of War, and the Secretary of State. They actually only met uh, once or twice in the whole time the CPI existed. It really operated as an agency, and it could have been called the Bureau or the Department of uh, Public Information, and it would have been more accurate. Okay. Uh, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, let me ask you this. You, you mentioned this and you're, when you were describing the committee. My understanding is, from reading your book, that the committee was set up through an executive order by Wilson, and there was some question about whether or not that was actually legal. Is that correct? Well, I think it's a question about whether or not it was constitutional. I got you. Uh, we, we have had in history uh, people who have been called, for example, the energy czar, somebody who's, who's put into a position, a brand new position, to solve an urgent issue. For example, when Frank Zarb became the energy czar. George Creel, you could argue, was the first such czar, and, uh, although he didn't have that title. And, and the circumstances that called into question uh, such an arrangement I uh, have applied since, and every time this has happened since, in the case of uh, Frank Zarb, for example, uh, Congress objected. In the case of Creel, however, uh, this was such a novel idea, and it came in the middle of so many other war preparations, that it sort of escaped attention uh, in the sense of whether it was constitutional or not. Uh, it also 
was unusual because the uh, Wilson was able to pay for the CPI out of a war fund, so there was no congressional oversight of its work, nor was there any advice and consent with regard to whether or not Creel should have been the person put in charge of it. But yes, I think in the end, it was it was not constitutional. And certainly, whether it was constitutional or not, the Constitution is rather vague about setting up organizations like this. Even if it might have been constitutional, uh, it was ill-advised because it made it a target, an easy target for criticism since it hadn't gone through the normal oversight process that occurs for other government entities. I got you. Well, you know, George Creel is at the center of this. Tell us a little bit about him. I know he, he once described himself as, I think, the original Woodrow Wilson man, but who was George Creel? Creel was a muckraking journalist. You could almost say he was born as a muckraker since there was nothing about him that was really neutral. He grew up in Kansas City and started journalism there. He then went to Denver, Colorado, where he was a journalist and for a brief time police commissioner. Uh, he was a pyrotechnic kind of guy. Uh, very few people were neutral about George Creel. They either liked him or hated him. Uh, he did, like a lot of muckraking journalists, a lot of good in the sense that he drew attention to ills in society. But he was so over the top that he also uh, often went too far. And uh, and one of the and one of the areas where he his passions really played out was he was very supportive of Woodrow Wilson. He was on the publicity committee of the Democratic National Committee that uh, led to help lead to Wilson's reelection in 1916. And because of his loyalty to Wilson and Wilson admired and appreciated people who liked him and were ardently supportive of him, uh, he was easily uh, appointed to head this new committee, a job for which he was not well equipped by temperament. Well, let me ask you this, because I think, you know, we go back in time in history and folks may not know as much about World War I. But at the time that this committee is set up, Wilson has really got some concerns, does he not, about uh, public support for America's entry into the war? Yes. Americans were ambivalent about getting into the war uh, for a variety of reasons. Some, Some would be kind of obvious. For example, Americans who were of German extraction, for example, uh, socialists and people on the left were uh, wondered if it was really a good idea to be war. Uh, church groups wondered. And then there was just the general American sense that it wasn't their business uh, to be involved overseas, especially in a war that involved the British, for example. There's a lot of antipathy to, to the British uh, among Midwesterners. And, uh, and they were also concerned by progressives who thought that... Uh, the uh, United States needed a lot of reforming, and they wanted to focus their efforts there and not interrupt them by worrying about a war. Right. Uh, so Wilson uh, did, did want to build up war support. It, it has to be said, however, that once we got into the war and the circumstances that got us into the war, uh, there wasn't really a lot of American dissent. The real problem turned out that there was too much patriotism, <laughs> that is, patriotism that turned into jingoism and led to abuses uh, that uh, I think we're still living with today in the sense that it set up patterns that have been repeated since. You know, it's it's interesting. When I read the book, I, I saw parallels, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later, parallels with current time. And when you were talking about the, like, the excess of patriotism, and you mentioned this in the book, there was things set up like the American Protective League, where um, the Department of Justice, as I recall, used regular citizens to rat out anybody that they thought might be disloyal, right? 
Yeah, even gave them badges. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so Wilson's dealing with this issue. He's run on the campaign um, slogan of he kept us out of the war. So was part of CPI's role to try to make sure that there was ongoing support for the war? Yeah, so I think the way to look at, at the CPI's involvement and also to look at propaganda by other countries is that there was a certain dynamic in place. And uh, part of that was that politicians had, in the preceding years, come to realize that public opinion was more and more important. The public was better read, had more access to information, and therefore to lead, you had to persuade. Uh, the war uh, uh, up the ante because it wasn't just a war. It was our first total war, which meant, meant you had to mobilize every part of society. You had to convince housewives to can vegetables. You had to con- con- convince uh, citizens to conserve coal. Uh, the government took over a lot of entities at the time, like railroads. And the idea was to convince the public that this was good and get them to, to buy war bonds and to get them to enlist. And the list goes on and on. So total war requires always requires propaganda. And uh, the CPI was our American expression of that. But every country had a propaganda agency. And every country actually ended up doing pretty much the same thing. The difference was that some did it better than others. Well, I want to talk to you about that. But first, let's talk about the word propaganda. Because in reading your book, and I thought maybe he was being disingenuous, Creel denied that CPI did propaganda, right? That's what he said the Germans did. He saw CPI as a great advertising adventure, right? That's right. And the, and the first law of propaganda, as I write, is always that only the enemy does it. Right. And, okay, let's talk, you started talking about what other countries were doing. Um, at the time that we, America jumps in the war, the war's been going on for about two and a half years, France, Britain, Germany all had similar propaganda agencies, but some were more effective than others, right? Especially in the United States. And, and, a different aspect, and in different aspects of it. So, for example, the British were very, very good at using stealth to, uh, to do their propaganda, and they were very effective at it in the United States, whereas the Germans were very heavy-handed in their propaganda in the United States. And that redounded to their disadvantage. One of the interesting parts of the story, it seems to me, is how, how clever the British were at what they did. Although, if you look at the British files and you see what they're saying, in other words, saying to each other in the home office, writing minutes to each other and so forth, they say things like, you know, it's really interesting. We don't know how to do propaganda. Only the Germans do it. And again, that gets back to this point I made. Propagandists never believe they're doing propaganda, right. no matter how good they are. But, you know, one of the things I found fascinating and, and really shows how thought out this was, and you point this out in the book, too, is that the British, right off the bat, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, took steps to assure that German propaganda had a hard time reaching the United States, right? Cutting cables and things like that. The first, as soon as the war started that evening, when they declared, when the British declared war, they sent a ship out into the... Um, into the English Channel, and uh, his job was to cut all the cable lines um, so that uh, news from Germany couldn't reach the United States. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about something else in that. You, in the book, 
you lay out in great detail, and it's fascinating, the different things that the CPI did, what its projects were and things like that. Could you talk a little bit about that, uh, how it went about fulfilling its mission, if you will? Right. Well, it is a long list, uh, and the, the list has, had to be laid out in the book simply because you couldn't understand the power of what the CPI did without realizing that it left no communication opportunity unused. So they had they, they had a news service, for example, uh, multiple news services. They planted stories in newspapers and magazines separately from that. They uh, used advertising on posters. They were they made films. Uh, they had speaker uh, speakers bureaus that went around the country. The list they even had they even had a special service for cartoons that they distributed. Uh, there really was it really was ubiquitous, and I found a wonderful little postcard by the head of the advertising bureau, uh, who uh, was was a, was a leading advertiser in the United States, an advertising executive, um, and the advertising community worked for free for the for the CPI, helping them get people to help do ads, pay posters and whatever, and then place them around the country. Anyway, he was mentioning that he saw a poster, a CPI poster, in the plains of, of uh, Colorado. And he said, you know, basically he said, we're everywhere. You know, even in the smallest little town, you can find the CPI's message. And it was true. And, and uh, it was literally true. And what's significant about that is that it was, it was um, I, I, I guess you would say, it, it, it was uninvited. In other words, you could not, as an American citizen, decide if you wanted to pay attention to government information because it was in your face all the time. Well, you know, in fact, the CPI, again, I keep referencing your book because it's such a wealth of information. Creel and the CPI used known authors to write articles for them that were was propaganda, correct? Absolutely. And and blatant propaganda, nothing subtle about them. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I found fascinating, and this may require the listeners to go back in time, and so if you want to talk about that a little bit, you know, we're not talking about a time of television and things like that. Most people got their information through newspapers, posters, those kinds of things. There was something that CPI set up called the four-minute man. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so it's a good example of not only the CPI's reach, but also its creativity and George Creel's uh, willingness to take a chance. So at the beginning of the war, uh, on Creel's first day in office, uh, a young Chicagoan arrived in his then tiny little office uh, in the old executive office building uh, next to the White House. And he had an idea, and the idea was that people could uh, speak during the changing of films in movie theaters. In fact, he and a group of young Chicagoans had done just that to argue for war preparedness uh, earlier in 1917. Creel liked the idea. And so he created what was called the Four Minute Men. And these Four Minute Men would speak for four minutes during the changing of the films. What was important about them was they appeared to be locals. They were locals. They were prominent citizens, whether they were business people or lawyers or elected officials or journalists. And they would they would they would speak on a topic that was given to them by the CPI. Every week the CPI had a message, and so these people would speak the message. It appeared that they were local. It appeared they were grassroots, but in fact they were they were very closely and uh, in detail orchestrated by Washington D.C. and uh, and also monitored to make sure they only spoke for four minutes and they stayed on topic. Sample speeches were given to them and uh, all the rest. 
At the end of the war, there were 75,000 Four Minutemen. They not only spoke in movie theaters, they spoke in logging camps and the churches, although movie theaters was the primary venue. So that you came into the movie thinking you were going to watch Tex Ritter, and in, in addition to Tex Ritter, you got yourself a speech on the war. And what fascinates me about that is it's rather like social media today. You pick up your phone and you're looking for the, I don't know, LSU sports score, but then scrolling across the bottom is some political message somebody wants you to get that you didn't ask for. <laughs> Uh, it's non-consensual, but there it is, telling you what to think. Well, and let's let's make one other thing clear, because I want to make sure that the, the listeners have a sense of, of CPI and, and the content. Isn't it correct that some of the stories that CPI put out were blatantly false? But those instances were, were, were really not intentional. The CPI didn't set out purposely to lie. But they did other things that were just as bad. They were tendentious in the sense that they provided only the information they wanted to provide. Uh, they appealed to emotion rather than simply providing facts. Uh, and as a result, the, the audience never got a, really a complete picture. And they also did something uh, particularly pernicious, which was they would try to fence back information that they didn't like. And that, this wasn't simply a matter of censorship. It was a matter of trying to discredit information that you didn't like. So we all talk today about fake news, and Donald Trump talked about fake news. Well, in the Wilson administration, they talked about spy talk, the idea being that if you said something that contradicted Wilson's foreign policy or Wilson's domestic policy, it would be, it would be called spy talk as if that was information that you were, you were saying because you were a spy, you were a German uh, sympathizer, or somehow some German had surreptitiously distorted your point of view and you were passing it on. And this is very pernicious because it doesn't help promote debate on sure. issues that are really important. And one of the biggest ones of those was whether or not we should have had a negotiated peace rather than fighting it out to the bitter end. And my own view happens to be a negotiated peace would have had a, had a uh, far better uh, consequences. And uh, any talk about negotiated peace was described as spy talk. Well, yeah. And, of course, Wilson ran saying... You know, we need peace without victory. I think that was the quote. But he was immediately attacked by Lodge and Roosevelt. And I think Roosevelt used some less than flattering terms in describing that. Um, mm -hmm. Correct? I think I'm correct. Yeah, that's that. right. And, um, and when he got to the peace table, in spite of the fact that he had promised yeah. through his propaganda that he would have a just peace for the Germans, he had a very unjust peace. Yeah. And it paved the way for World War II. Yeah. Now, let's talk about, so we've talked about a little bit about propaganda, but the flip side of this during the Wilson administration, and unfortunately it's one of the, let's say, the deficiencies of his administration, is the suppression of speech with the Espionage Act and the Sedition Act and all that. What role, if any, did CPI play in that regard and with suppression of speech? Well, initially it was thought that the CPI might acquire statutory authority for censorship. That didn't happen. Uh, and in fact, Wilson wanted uh, legislation that would have been like the Defense of the Realm Act in Great Britain, which meant you could you could put any kinds of information off limits that you wanted to, including what they were serving in the canteen at 10 Downey Street. Uh, he didn't get that, but he did get uh, a lot of legal authority to trim back speech. All of the CPI's work was done uh, through referred authority. That is, for example, uh, the CPI didn't didn't have direct censorship responsibility 
for the press, uh, for stories sent abroad, for, for example, uh, or set stories that came in from abroad, uh, that was really done by the Navy, which was in charge of wireless. But the CPI had an office in the Navy facilities, and so they worked very closely with the, with, with the Navy. Uh, and the same thing applied with uh, postal censorship. So it had lots of ways to exert influence that was censorious, even if it didn't have the law absolutely behind it. But I would, I would point out that uh, the CPI could also just, by saying it didn't like a, a newspaper or a reporter saying something, could have a very chilling effect because you wouldn't know what the CPI could do. Creel, Creel was one of the most powerful men in Washington. He was seen that way. And, for example, if you made George Creel unhappy, you could worry about whether you'd get newsprint because newsprint was being rationed at the time. And uh, there was ongoing concern about whether your newspaper would have enough newsprint to stay in business or at least to, to fill up, to provide news. So uh, there were all kinds of unofficial ways the CPI could uh, act as, as a censor. Well, let's talk about the, you know, when I read the book, one of the things that struck me was you had Creole on one side with the CPI, and then because of the Espionage and Sedition Act, you had uh, a guy named Albert Burleson, who's the postmaster, who was, I think, given kind of carte blanche as deciding uh, what magazines could be shipped out, which ones couldn't. So am I correct in a real sense between Creole and CPI and Burleson with censorship, they got to determine pretty much what Americans read about the war? Well, there was no direct censorship of American newspapers. That was voluntary. There could be ex post facto, you know, criticism of the papers, or you could put pressure on them to uh, desist because they would be, con be concerned there would be repercussions. But there was no direct domestic censorship of newspapers. There was censorship of magazines because magazines needed to use, uh, needed to be mailed. Oh. So the post office had the ability to stop magazines that they thought were being unpatriotic or printing something that was in direct, uh, a direct threat to the American war effort. Creel and Burleson worked very closely together. Uh, he was on, Creel was on the, the post office censorship board. There was also a third entity that was involved, and that was the Justice Department, which right. could go after individuals who spoke out, who said things in public that were considered um, uh, uh, a violation of the Espionage Act. And, and of and, course, the, the, go ahead. I'm sorry. And of course, the prime example of that is Eugene Debs, who had, yeah. who was the socialist who ran for president in 1912, and won more votes, by the way, than any socialist had ever won before or since. Uh, and he ended up going to jail. And I think it's the only way to really describe what happened to him was he was a political prisoner. He just he spoke out against the war. Yeah. Well, and, you know, you're talking about the Justice Department's role. And I guess this is where J. Edgar Hoover starts coming into the story of the country. Right. That's right. He, he was then, of course, a lower level official. And there wasn't anything called the FBI at that point. Uh, but he was in the Justice Department and he was trying to root out. Um, he and others were trying to root out people who uh, were dissenting from the Wilson's War uh, propaganda. Well, let's, we're going to run out of time in a couple of minutes, but I want to get to current. But let me ask this question to kind of close the link. When was the CPI disbanded? It was disbanded uh, at the end of 1918, although little pieces of it hung on for a while. But in an important way, 
it, it was never it was never ended. It was disbanded, and its activities were were. Ended. But its techniques and its work carried on. Instead of being in a single propaganda ministry, as it were, they were picked up by individual agencies in the federal government. And really everything that's done today can find its antecedent in the CPI. Well, and that brings us to the final question, I guess. Let's talk about the legacy of the CPI. You mentioned to me before we got on the air that you just wrote an article for Politico on uh, a proposal that I think the Biden administration is making to have a um, disinformation governance board under the Homeland Security, uh, under Homeland Security. T- take us forward and tell us what the legacy of CPI is. Well, this particular entity they're trying to create is uh, might be a good idea and might be a bad idea, but it has many features that you can see in the CPI. Poorly planned out. It's a misnomer. They're obviously not going to do governance. Uh, it's being headed by a woman who is also highly partisan, which was the same mistake they made in picking Creel. And it's unclear whether just how broad their agenda can be. What do, what does it mean to say we have a we have a unit in the government that's trying to root out disinformation? Does that mean it's going to monitor speech by Americans? Uh, I don't think that's a very good idea, honestly. Uh, but I think the bigger part of the legacy that is ongoing and is apart from that particular organization that was created a few weeks back uh, is that the government has acquired vast uh, abilities to persuade Americans or to put it in a more bald way to use taxpayer dollars to shape what they think. And we have very few rules that fence that back. A democracy thrives on the idea of the government providing fact-based information. It even thrives and, in fact, has to have politicians, elected officials who, who argue for policies uh, that they favor. That's the democratic process. But we don't want government agencies to be using the money that we give them to shape what we think. For example, and I'll just give you one, mm-hmm. the Obama administration wanted to raise the minimum wage, something, by the way, I happen to approve of personally. But it's not a very good idea. In fact, it's a terrible idea for the Labor Department to be sending out information asking American citizens to write to their congresspeople telling them they should vote for such an increase. That's something the president can argue for, but we don't want all kinds of staff members to be sending out broadsides trying to get us to do something that they that they want. Uh, that, that's um, I don't think that's appropriate. And this happens. These kind of things happen all the time. And in some cases, they're egregious. And in an egregious way, just as one example of the president being able to aggrandize themselves or their policies, is when Donald Trump is not elected, but claims he is, and comes out to give a speech in which he has hail to the chief playing in the background, <laughs> giving him uh, kind of a, uh, uh, an aura as if he really is, always will be the, secretary, the president of the United States. You know, uh, I, go ahead, I'm sorry. We have to be careful about presidents using their powers in a way that's not fair. It's it's so difficult. This is going to take us very current, bring us very current. It's so difficult for folks to know what the actual facts are these days. And what I think you're, I'm hearing you say is that the government, since CPI and politicians as well, have recognized the importance of propaganda and shaping opinions to meet whatever their needs are. That's correct. And yeah. and the collaterally with that, the number of journalists who are covering. Washington have decreased, that is, legacy journalists with good, reputable news organizations, so that 
at the same time that the government gets to be better and better at getting its message across and even bypassing the press, as Obama and Trump did by using social media and not having to stand up all, all, all the time in front of hostile journalists who will – hostile probably the wrong word – stand up in front of journalists who will ask them tough questions. Uh, at the same time that they get these additional powers, the, the number of people, the number of journalists who are covering them has decreased. And so this becomes progressively more out of balance. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, you've been listening to the Writers Forum. I'm your host, Mike Tusa, and I've really been privileged to talk to John Maxwell Hamilton about his fascinating book, Manipulating the Masses, Woodrow Wilson and the Birth of American Propaganda. John, is there a website or I know the book is, is readily available, but is there a website or anything like that that folks can look up to get more information? Well, you can uh, certainly go to Amazon and, and get a copy. And uh, if you just Google my name, you'll see I've written a number of articles recently that give a, you know, a brief take on what the book's about. Okay. Well, thank you so much, John, for, for doing this with me. 